The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1902, a 19-year-old officer cadet named Franz Kappas wrote a letter to a graduate of his Austrian military school named René Maria Rilke. Rilke, who by then had changed his first name to Rainer, had left the academy and foregone the career of his father, an Austrian army officer, in favor of becoming a poet. Franz Kappas wanted his advice. What followed was a correspondence that included ten of the most famous letters in literature. Published in 1929, three years after Rilke's death from leukemia at the age of 51. We've talked about this book before with our friend Amanda Stern, who, like many young writers and young artists and young people of all kinds, found comfort and inspiration in Rilke's words. And now, as we turn the calendar pages of another year, it was recommended to me that we take a look at letter number six, which Rilke wrote on the day before Christmas Eve, 1903. As it happened, I was about to interview author and translator Stephen Mitchell, whose translations of Rilke had first introduced me to that poet, and in fact, these letters, when I was a young person. It was the perfect recommendation at the perfect time. The spheres harmonized, and I have been revisiting Rilke ever since. A great source of joy for me and pleasure, but also, it's a bit melancholy. I am now the people I wondered whether I would become for good and for ill. But this isn't about me. Not today. It's about Stephen Mitchell and Rilke and all of us. It's all coming up today on the History of Literature. we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for being here. Can we get a little holiday music, perhaps? Hmm. That's such a nice song for the holidays. Perfect for a nice mug of tea. Maybe a toddy, if it's late enough in the day. Well, it's always toddy time somewhere in the world, isn't it? So drink up. Here's what we have for you today. We're going to have a quick little episode, I think. Well, we'll see. We will first hear from Stephen Mitchell. Wasn't that a great episode with him last time? If you haven't listened to that one, please do check it out. I feel like I am a frame for a picture. That's what I do, isn't it? As the host, these episodes are like... Museum-worthy pieces. And my friends who join me, I call my guests my friends, even though they might not think of me that way. I mean, they're all friendly, but I don't know them outside of the podcast, except for a handful of them who are old and dear friends, or sometimes new and dear friends. Anyway, Stephen Mitchell was here, and he was yet another masterpiece to hang on our humble little wall here in this History of Literature Museum, and where am I in that? I sort of surround him and hopefully not get in the way, like a frame. 
if I'm doing my job, I I help connect the viewer to the art. Supportive. Maybe a little bit fancy now and then, but not gaudy. And not gauche. That is my hope, anyway. And I'm proud to support episodes, masterpieces like that one with Steven. He is such a wise spirit. I loved talking to him. So, today, we are going to his translation of Letters to a Young Poet by Rilke. But first, I want to read you a bit of the introduction to that book, the foreword, because it's Stephen Mitchell talking to us about his discovery of Rilke. And there are some fascinating passages he sets up. That will come first. Then we'll dive into one of the ten letters. It's not long, but it will give us much to talk about and think about. And then we will say goodbye for this holiday season. And you can return to your loved ones. Or maybe your solitude. Your gifts and your holiday meals. Or your solitude. And we will eagerly wait for you to return when all of that is over. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. The angels sang it upon hearing the news that Jesus would be born. And as Stephen points out, their song, their lyrics to their song, the words, it's Jesus's entire philosophy in six words, more or less. What Jesus stood for is right there. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Those King James translators knew what they were doing, and yet, methinks they took some liberties with their translation. I'm not an expert, but I know the words are often translated a little differently. The New International Version of the Bible has the angels singing, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, Peace to those on whom his favor rests. God's favor. Hear the difference? Peace to those on whom his favor rests. God chooses. In that version, that translation, he favors. He wants peace for some, apparently, and for others whom he disfavors. We're not wishing peace. War, maybe, is appropriate. Strife, struggle. Maybe that's the Old Testament. The final days of the Old Testament. Maybe Jesus brought about the change. The New Covenant. The New Testament. The New Deal. Now, it's for everyone. That peace. Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. The angels had not yet gotten the memo. I'm making up this theology, people, but I'm not wrong about the translations. The Bible Gateway, which is an incredible website, by the way. Every translation into English is all right there, and you can easily compare the versions. Passage by passage, verse by verse. The Bible Gateway shows us these words translated in more than 60 different versions into English, and by my count... Something like 45 of them have some kind of qualifier to this peace we are awarding to people. Whether that's those who please God, those who are in God's favor, those with whom God is pleased. Goodwill to those people. The New American Standard Bible, famed for its accuracy and its translation, has it the words as, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. 
peace among people with whom he is pleased. And yet, I like the King James idea, goodwill toward men. I'll add women, of course. Peace on earth, goodwill to all. That's how I want to feel anyway. That's how I understand it. And it's not the only way to be. You might choose differently, which is fine, but it's how I am at my best. I'm convinced of that. Goodwill to all you lowly humans, saints and scum alike, the rich and the poor, the wise and the foolish, the Dimitris and Ivans and Alyoshas and Smerdyakovs. I have room in my heart for all of you, even you, Smerdyakov, a.k.a. Son of the Reeking One. That's his translation. And I have room in my heart for your mother, too, Reeking Lizaveta. That's her name. I hope you didn't actually collect those stray cats, Smerdyakov, in order to hang and bury them, as is rumored. Let's just assume that's a rumor. So I don't have to make any hard choices here. Trying to be pure of heart. Wish you goodwill. When one dreams of snow, it tends to be white, not yellow. Sometimes when I saw yellow snow, I used to tell myself it was a trick of the sunlight so I could keep my idealistic dreams alive that this was pure, fresh snow. But even then... I knew that it was snow best avoided. Idealism with a little touch of realism. Just a touch is not such a bad way to be. Let's take a quick break. Then hear more from Stephen Mitchell. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. As I mentioned, this is the version of Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, published by Vintage in a wonderful little volume. Smooth cover, purples and pinks and yellows. 
At least my version has those colors as seen with my eyes, which are admittedly a little bit colorblind. Don't tell my sister. I've been claiming otherwise for decades. Sort of one of those things that little brothers have to do to survive. <laughs> and I've kept up the lie all this time. Anyway, Stephen Mitchell's foreword begins, quote, These extraordinary letters were my introduction to Rilke. I remember first opening the small, light green cover of the French translation, given to me in Paris by a girl I was in love with when I was 19. When both love and the German language were more alien to me than the moon. End quote. Let me stop there. 19. The perfect age for reading this book, a year out of high school or thereabouts, trying to make one's way in the world, free and open, and looking for role models, and feeling like none of them quite fit. Rilke and this book is well-suited for an individual in that position. It's more or less when I first read it, I think, and although it was not given to me by someone with whom I was in love, it was part of several different love affairs from that era. As my lovers and I shared the book and its ideas, trying to make sense of the powerful emotions and yearnings and different pulls in different directions that we were feeling as we made our way from transitioned into adulthood, I guess you'd say, love was more alien than the moon for Stephen Mitchell, and so was the German language. A lot of things feel that way when one is 19. But like the moon, those things are also there, real, full of light, full of mystery and romance. And although they're alien, they're ours, too. In a way, the moon is romantic and mysterious, but it's ours. It belongs to us. We can all bask in its light. We can all look up at it and own it, in a way. It belongs to everyone. Languages like that, and Rilke, too, and, as Stephen Mitchell suggests, love. Okay, back to the foreword. The book, says Stephen Mitchell, was a revelation. I had never heard a voice speaking out of such deep understanding with such authority. I felt, as many readers have felt, that the letters were written for me. From the very first pages, where solitude is considered as a positive experience, I had thought of it as a kind of disease. My life seemed to acquire a new clarity and sanction. So, even before I read a line of Rilke's poetry, I regarded him as a spiritual teacher, and came to treat him in that small, light green-covered book with the greatest respect, the way some people keep their copy of the I Ching wrapped in silk. End quote. Hmm. What a nice image. The I Ching wrapped in silk. The respect one has for a book and a philosophical way of life, a set of teachings, a direction, a path. Such a book must be wrapped in silk. Silka. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. Rilke, the poet who speaks directly to us about solitude, not only lamenting 
that it's something to get over, an obstacle, a disease, but telling us it's something to embrace, to seek out, to go into. Be solitary, he tells us. Find yourself in that solitude. It is the real you. The you free from distractions, free from others, free from the hell that is other people, the deepest you, the biggest you. It's the youest of all yous, the essential you. One more passage from the foreword. This is astonishing. And then we will be ready for a letter from Rilke himself. Mitchell says, quote, Rilke was dealing with an existential problem opposite from the one that most of us need to resolve, whereas we find a thick, if translucent, barrier between self and other, he was often without even the thinnest differentiating membrane. And unlike more grounded people who have passed through the initial terror and experienced this openness as freedom, Rilke often found himself being swallowed up by a lover or a neighbor or a man with St. Vitus's dance walking down a Paris boulevard. Let me pause here. This is Jack. Let me pause Stephen's words here to say that St. Vitus's dance is a neurological condition that could lead to convulsions. Rilke, Mitchell was telling us, would lose his own sense of self in the sight of a person like that on the street or in the wake of a closeness with a neighbor or the connection with a lover. Such extreme empathy with no self-defense is almost like a kind of spirituality. It's a giving, a generosity that's almost more godlike than human. Okay, back to the foreword. Quote, You can see it in his eyes. This is Mitchell talking about Rilke, about photos of him. You can see it in his eyes. The powerful intuition of the state of being that is called God the huge oppressive longing for it, and the desolation. End quote. That is a beautiful sentence. The powerful intuition of the state of being that is called God, the huge oppressive longing for it, and the desolation. Oh, we know what this is, don't we, listeners? It's hard to be beatific sometimes. It's hard to be great-souled and spiritually enriched and generous and hungry. It all comes with so much deep longing. The enlargement of your soul comes with risk. When your heart expands, it becomes easier to break. And then comes this sentence about Rilke. A parenthetical sentence that Mitchell adds that I must have read 30 years ago, but I had forgotten about it completely. Parent, quote, parentheses. I once showed a psychic friend of mine a late photo of Rilke, and it took her three hours to recover from the glance. Close parentheses, end quote. Is that incredible or what? A psychic friend. What a thing to do. Here. My psychic friend, look at this poet, look at this photo of this poet from a hundred years ago. And this psychic friend fell into a state, a stupor, one guesses, like someone stunned, like someone who accidentally stares at a 
camera flash or gets blasted with some some heavenly aura and needs time to recover. Three hours it took her to recover, that poor psychic. But what a man, this Rilke. What a poet. It's no wonder his spirit travels through the page and through his words and comes down through the decades. Let's take our last break. And then we'll turn to this mighty poet's letter from December 23rd, 1903. December 23rd, 1903. My dear Mr. Coppice, I don't want you to be without a greeting from me when Christmas comes and when you, in the middle of the holiday, are bearing your solitude more heavily than usual. Hmm. Let me pause there and remind you that Coppice is embarking on a career in the military. Rilke's father was in the military and he had had an unsuccessful career. Rilke followed him at first, but gave it up. Coppice was wary of what was in store for him as he was starting out, and all of this is what Rilke is responding to when he writes this letter and discusses the solitude that Coppice is bearing. As Stephen Mitchell points out, solitude is one of the key modes of being for Rilke as well. And you know what? Every time I say Rilke, I nearly say Kafka. Those two have so much in common. Maybe that will be another episode. Rilke and Kafka. Okay, let's go back to the letter. But when you notice that it... He's, Rilke's referring to solitude still here. When you notice that it is vast, you should be happy. For what, you should ask yourself, would a solitude be that was not vast? There is only one solitude and it is vast, heavy, difficult to bear. Let me pause there again. Only one solitude. What does that mean exactly? One solitude available to us? One type of solitude? Or one solitude in the universe that is all connected with one another? What would a solitude be that was not vast? There is only one Solitude, what does that sound like to you? It sounds like something large, bigger than all of us. A value, a concept. It sounds a little like the cosmos, doesn't it? The universe, something spiritual, something intangible that reaches everywhere. Does it remind you of God? It does, doesn't it? Those are terms we might use for God aren't they? A single God? There's only one in our monotheistic culture. What would God be if it's not vast? It would be a bunch of bickering gods, powerful but not omnipotent like the Greek and Roman gods. But this, what we're talking about here, whether it's solitude or this something else, which I'm suggesting might be God, this is bigger 
vaster, there is only one. Here it's described, describing solitude, but solitude described in a way much bigger than a sort of simple mood that we might feel from time to time, like a hangnail or an itchy nose. This is vast, so vast that to define it means we accept that there is only one of its kind and it is large. That if it's not those two things, vast, heavy, and difficult to bear, and only one of, well, actually, that's four things I just named, isn't it? <laughs> but if it's not those four things, vast, heavy, difficult to bear, and, and singular, then it would not even be solitude. And so when you see the vastness, says Rilke, you should be happy. You should be happy. Do not be afraid of the vastness of the universe. Delight in the mysteries of its unimaginable size, incomprehensible size, and do not be afraid of the vastness of God. Rejoice in the constant presence of Him and His infinite reach. That's the kind of language we're using here, talking about solitude. That's the the game we're playing, the turf, the rules of the game we're playing. That's the the turf we're treading across. Back to the letter. There's only one solitude, and it is vast, heavy, difficult to bear, and almost everyone has hours when he would gladly exchange it for any kind of sociability, however trivial or cheap, for the tiniest outward agreement with the first person who comes along, the most unworthy. End quote. Rilke here is saying, Solitude is heavy, and it's oppressive, and it's ginormous, which is not his word. Vast is his word. Deep and powerful and abiding, that's the concept. So we would rather avoid it. Sometimes we'd say, oh, God, let me not be alone. Let me talk to someone. Get that chatty neighbor over here. I hope that landlord stops by. He's a gabber. Or I'll just walk down to the store and shoot the breeze with whoever I encounter. Anyone, anything is better than feeling how deeply lonely and deeply alone I am. Hello there, kind sir. Let's shake hands and smile because, my God, we're falling backwards into the abyss otherwise. And if you think we've moved beyond Rilke, let me introduce you to smartphones which have proven this point a billion times over. We want distraction. We crave it, and we will fill our days with pointlessness, with the cheap and the trivial, sorry, TikTok. Do you feel seen? I'm sorry, whatever else. Whatever else you find on that smartphone, we'll fill it with that. We'll fill our emptiness with that, because if we don't fill it, we will be sitting here alone in this vast cosmic eternal solitude, and that should make us happy, says Rilke, but it doesn't. It's a terrible burden. Are you going to explain why it should make us happy? Rilke, this is the man with a face that can stupefy a psychic. One glance and three hours to recover. I've had 30 years and I haven't really recovered from Rilke. Rilke in Tibet and I'm still as effed up as ever. The letter continues. Quote, 
But perhaps those, and here I should say he's referring back to the moments, the hours when we're afraid to face our solitude and and see, and instead we seek out trivial exchanges to distract ourselves. Perhaps those hours are the very hours during which solitude grows, for its growing is painful as the growing of boys and sad as the beginning of spring. But that must not confuse you. What is necessary, after all, is only this, solitude, vast inner solitude to walk inside yourself and meet no one for hours. That is what you must be able to attain. To be solitary as you were when you were a child, when the grown-ups walked around involved with matters that seemed large and important, because they seemed large and important, and because you didn't understand a thing about what they were doing. End quote. So, Rilke is setting us up for something here. The idea that solitude starts in us as children because we don't understand all the talk about insurance policies and real estate and taxes and work schedules and bills and bosses and all of that. And we naturally know, we know that kids who grow up come to know what all that means because kids become adults and adults deal with all that. It's part of the package of life. Unless... Dot, dot, dot. Back to the letter. Quote, And when you realize that their activities are shabby, that their vocations are petrified and no longer connected with life, why not then continue to look upon it all as a child would, as if you were looking at something unfamiliar, out of the depths of your own world, from the vastness of your own solitude, which is itself work and status and vocation. Why should you want to give up a child's wise not understanding in exchange for defensiveness and scorn, since not understanding is, after all, a way of being alone, whereas defensiveness and scorn are a participation in precisely what, by those means, you want to separate yourself from. End quote. Now, here is where the 19-year-old me and the current version of me part ways a bit. The 19-year-old me hears these words or heard them and thought, yes, absolutely, be big, be large. Don't follow the path of the shabby and the petrified. Lean into the solitude, embrace it fully, explore it, let it live within me and grow and dive into it like an ocean, take an axe to its frozen seas, and plunge into the cold, because that is living and paying taxes and checking auto insurance rates and buying groceries and running the post office and chatting about the weather and traffic and all that. That's meaningless. That's cheap and trivial. That's nothing compared with being a poet or an artist or a musician or just being a me, a big me, the biggest me. And the current version of me says, okay, yes, right, but what about others? What will others do, those who count on you? Can you be a child all your life? What about your aging parents? What about the, the sick friend? What about kids? Kids is the biggest of all. What if you're going to have a spouse and children? Well, 
Insurance policies are pretty important. It's a Christmas letter. So I can quote It's a Wonderful Life, where Clarence the Angel tells George Bailey, oh, no, no, we don't use money in heaven. And George says, all right. Well, it comes in pretty handy down here, bub. Those boring trips to the grocery store are pretty essential. Helping your kids, not just loving them, not just paying their way and not just setting an example for them, but actually rolling up your sleeves and being there for them, including all the mundane tasks as well as the unearthly, heavenly moments. Well, that's sort of a gift. That's part of being big. That's more than solitude. That's where you can be bigger by not clinging to solitude, at least in my view. Not that I'm going to start calling Rilke a bub, but you get the idea. He's living in the realm of the angels, and I'm down here with George Bailey, with my split lip that's bleeding. The current of version of me, the old man, chafes a bit at Rilke's prescription. Rilke, are you going to bring me back? Are you going to awaken this 19-year-old in me with the rest of your letter, or did you lose me? Is the impracticality of your advice, and especially the seeming denial of something as important as fatherhood or motherhood or parenting or love of someone other than yourself, embracing responsibility as well as solitude, is solitude just an exercise in narcissism? Is there room for any of that, for that selflessness in this worldview of yours? Let's hear where the rest of the letter goes. Quote, Think, dear sir, of the world that you carry inside you and call this thinking whatever you want to, a remembering of your own childhood or a yearning toward a future of your own. Only be attentive to what is arising within you and place that above everything you perceive around you. What is happening in your innermost self is worthy of your entire love. Somehow you must find a way to work at it and not lose too much time or too much courage in clarifying your attitude toward people. Who says that you have any attitude at all? I know your profession is hard and full of things that contradict you, and I foresaw your lament and knew that it would come. Now that it has come, there is nothing I can say to reassure you. I can only suggest that perhaps all professions are like that, filled with demands, filled with hostility toward the individual, saturated, as it were, with the hatred of those who find themselves mute and sullen in an insipid duty. End quote. Okay, Rilke's kind of winning me over here. Even the old man version of me. This describes the workplace. He's diagnosing the disease with honesty and precision. This is how most jobs make me feel. Not this one, not podcasting, but my other jobs. Maybe because he told me that they would feel this way, and so I went into those jobs with that expectation, but I kind of doubt it. I think Rilke and Kafka, too, were describers who assessed the modern world and pointed these things out. Working for others in this world, having a boss, working in this structure is deadening. 
the job, the situation hates those of us who struggle with it. The only people who are successful are the ones who truly love it. And the only ones who truly love it are the ones who have no souls. Hmm. Let's set aside what I said before about needing to do these adult things in order to be a parent or a good son or whatever. I appreciate Rilke describing my condition like this. So, let me know the cure, good doctor. Back to the letter. Quote, The situation you must live in now is not more heavily burdened with conventions, prejudices, and false ideas than all the other situations. And if there are some that pretend to offer a greater freedom, there is nevertheless none that is, in itself, vast and spacious and connected to the important things that the truest kind of life consists of. End quote. Things in this translation is capitalized, and in my reading of it, we have something like matters or concerns or values, the important matters that the truest kind of life consists of, right? Love might be one such thing. Individual flourishing might be another, to borrow from Aristotle. Passion, fulfillment, knowledge, devotion, faith, art, those are the truest kind of life. Those, those are what the truest kind of life consists of. I see what Rilke is saying, I believe. And is there room in there for parenting? Of course there is. So the dichotomy is, well, the job is going to get in the way of this. But this is what's important. And so I'm firmly back with Rilke once again. I appreciate how he's describing things. But then the letter takes a turn and he uses the word things, again, capitalized in this translation. He uses that word in a way that I didn't quite understand. And so I needed some help in understanding it. Luckily, my old friend Blume, my German friend, was there for me as she was when we were first reading Rilke all those years ago. So, Go back to the letter. Quote, Only the individual who is solitary is placed under the deepest laws like a thing. That's capitalized again. And when he walks out into the rising dawn or looks out into the event-filled evening, and when he feels what is happening there, all situations drop from him as if from a dead man, though he stands in the midst of pure life. End quote. Now, this is it's kind of a funny Christmas letter, isn't it? <laughs> imagine, imagine if you got this one in your mailbox instead of the, the letter right there among all the letters from the friends of yours who tell you about how their kids got straight A's and dad ran a marathon and mom got a promotion. This and that. Imagine getting this letter. So... Let's unpack this. Only the individual who is solitary is placed under the deepest laws like a thing. I had to ask Blume what that meant in the German. Thing, I assume, was not an object, not just a, an object, a value, a concept. But then we get to that phrase, placed under the deepest laws like a thing. Did that mean that 
a thing was one of the deepest laws, or that the thing was placed under the deepest laws. So I asked Blume. Her first response, let me have a look, Hans. Be back in a flash. <laughs> so great <laughs> to know that you have a friend who's willing to drop what she's doing and take a look at a book she's got on her shelf. Okay, and then a few minutes later, she delivered the goods. She says, found it. Dinge, that's the German word for things. Dinge can mean things and objects. In the first sentence, he means the great subjects, the most important things life consists of. That's easy. But in the next sentence, which, by the way, is the one that I had struggled with, but in the next sentence, says Blume, I understand that the individual who is solitary is like a non-human being placed under the deepest laws. He or she is not human anymore but like an object with no power over her or himself, exposed or subject to the deepest laws. Mm. Wow. She explains further that Rilke seems to be saying that once you open yourself to the vastness and beauty of the world, all the arrogance of status falls off. She translated uh, a different part of the letter as social status. Coppice's social status, that's how she's reading this. But then she says, what are the deepest laws anyway? In the original, Rilke says, Tifa Gesetze. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Tifa Gesetze. Blume says, so only deep, but not deep. But what does deep law mean? Tifa Gesetze for me, it would be like laws of nature, the basic of all rules or laws, yeah? Hence, when you go out in the early morning and feel one with nature, you are naked. No status, no profession matters. You are like a dead person, only a very alive, as he says. What a wonderful sentence, Rainer Maria. Hope I was able to help you, Hans. Don't forget to mention that you wanted to be a Rilke poem once. <laughs> It's <laughs> referring back to those embarrassing letters I wrote. Ha, ha, ha. Thank you, Blume. As if I'm not embarrassed enough as it is. But I hear what she's saying. But in my reading, nature is only one of those things. I know the lawn we're cutting across now. It's something more like spiritual awakening, and it's something like finding God. Except that God here is the sort of God as the universe, the God that's part of all things, that connects us all, the energy of everything, the matter and the energy and the light and the darkness and the life. It's connecting with all of that, which is why I think Stephen Mitchell was so drawn to Rilke and why Rilke has been so influential. It's what we do or what we aspire to, or what we wish we could aspire to, even when we're talking about insurance policies because we're trying to be a good dad. And I'll go further and say that I have felt like this or tried to or wanted to try to when I was changing diapers and buckling my boys in the car seat and taking them to see later when they were older, taking them to see Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen. And when I was sitting in the stands watching them play basketball when they were as big as me. 
as they are now. And I felt it long ago when I was holding them in my arms as they drifted off to sleep. Let's go back and hear Herr Rilke's advice to the young soldier who was not very happy about soldiering. And let's hear if Rilke makes this pivot to God as well, the godness of everything. And, spoiler alert, he does make that pivot, but let's hear him describe it because it's far more beautiful than I could do. It's far more surprising. He says, quote, What you, dear Mr. Kappas, now have to experience as an officer, you would have felt in just the same way in any of the established professions. Yes, even if outside any position, you had simply tried to find some easy and independent contact with society. This feeling of being hemmed in would not have been spared you. It is like this everywhere. But that is no cause for anxiety or sadness. If there is nothing you can share with other people, try to be close to things. They will not abandon you. And the nights are still there, and the winds that move through the trees and across many lands. Everything in the world of things and animals is still filled with happening, which you can take part in. And children are still the way you were as a child, sad and happy in just the same way. And if you think of your childhood, you once again live among them, among the solitary children, and the grown-ups are nothing, and their dignity has no value. End quote. Okay, I'm back on board with Relka. This is how I have tried to live, to stay above to think large, not to let being a grown-up drag me down too much, and I hardly ever succeed. But I have always tried, and I do succeed for brief glimpses, brief moments, or at least I'd like to think I do. And my guess is that you, dear listeners, have done the same, tried the same thing, and have probably done even better than I have. And now the letter pivots, makes that pivot to God, which was where this was headed all the time, wasn't it? Quote, And if it frightens and torments you to think of childhood and of the simplicity and silence that accompanies it, because you can no longer believe in God, who appears in it everywhere, then ask yourself, dear Mr. Coppice, whether you have really lost God. Isn't it much truer to say that you have never yet possessed him? For when could that have been? Do you think that a child can hold him, him whom grown men bear only with great effort and whose weight crushes the old? Do you suppose that someone who really has him could lose him like a little stone? Or don't you think that someone who once had him could only be lost by him? But... If you realize that he did not exist in your childhood and did not exist previously, if you suspect that Christ was deluded by his yearning and Muhammad deceived by his pride, and if you are terrified to feel that even now he does not exist, even at this moment when we are talking about him, what justifies you then if he never existed in missing him like someone who has passed away? and in searching for him, as though he were lost. End quote. Whoa. 
That's not exactly what I was expecting. The argument here is sort of like John Lennon's make up your mind if you want to live or die, but be honest about it, which he gave to Stu Sutcliffe's young German girlfriend, Astrid Kircher, after Stu died young and she thought she might want to kill herself. He's saying, Rilke's saying, well, do you believe in this God or not? Did you ever? Do you really think you used to have him when you were a child and now you don't? Do you think a child would be able to have him? How? How would a child, what would give a child that strength when grown men and women fail to have that strength? But if they did, if children did, and you were one of them as a child, but now you're, you're sad and full of anxiety because you no longer have God, because how could you say you lost God? How does one lose an omnipotent being? Isn't it more likely that he lost you, you little puny being? And if you believe that you were mistaken back then, that God doesn't exist and didn't exist, and also believe by implication that Jesus and Muhammad and millions of others have all been deluded, well, if that's the case, then why would you sit around missing him? Why would you need to search for him? Let's go back to the letter. Quote, Why don't you think of him as the one who is coming, who has been approaching from all eternity, the one who will someday arrive, the ultimate fruit of a tree whose leaves we are? What keeps you from projecting his birth into the ages that are coming into existence and living your life as a painful and lovely day in the history of a great pregnancy? Don't you see how everything that happens is again and again a beginning? And couldn't it be his beginning? Since, in itself, starting is always so beautiful. If he is the most perfect one, must not what is less perfect precede him so that he can choose himself out of fullness and superabundance? Must not he be the last one so that he can include everything in himself? And what meaning would we have if he whom we are longing for has already existed? End quote. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're getting to the end of the letter. God isn't present in us when we're doing good things, or he's not part of us all the time, no matter what, because we, when we're expanding out, when we're living like this, are creating him. God is going to follow. He'll have all this that we put forth now, all the sympathy and charity and faith and hope and love and all the flaws to the imperfections. He'll take all that goodness that we've expressed and absorb it into his being. He will perfect it because something perfect and omnipotent can't coexist with something flawed, but it can replace something flawed. How exciting to think that our flaws will disappear but everything good in us, all the good we do and think and say, will flow into this being that we are creating. This thing that will come after, 
the God that has yet to be, but which will be, and which will be born, and will start fresh in its perfection. We are creating God. Maybe when we think and love and help, and maybe when we create, and maybe when we breathe in and out, and when our hearts beat, and maybe when we grow, and maybe when we live, and maybe when we die. Maybe then we are creating God. Back to the letter. As bees gather honey, so we collect what is sweetest out of all things and build Him. Even with the trivial, with the insignificant, as long as it is done out of love, we begin with work and with the repose that comes afterward, with a silence or with a small solitary joy, with everything that we do alone, without anyone to join or help us, we start him whom we will not live to see, just as our ancestors could not live to see us. And yet they, who passed away long ago, still exist in us as predisposition, as burden upon our fate, as murmuring blood, and as gesture that rises up from the depths of time. Is there anything that can deprive you of the hope that in this way you will someday exist in Him who is the farthest, the outermost limit? End quote. Okay. I now have chills. My heart is beating fast. I feel trembling. I have goosebumps. I now feel not just joy, but extreme joy like that. I have never experienced before, except that I have. I experienced it when I was 19. And then I lost it, this feeling. And now, sitting here today, reading Rilke again, I'm feeling it all these years later. Maybe it's time for me to haul this battered old carcass back to Tibet, where my mind was living in this way. As strong as the sun and as free as the wind. Back to the letter, dear Mr. Kappas, Rilke says. By the way, he and him have been capitalized here. Something uh, you would see if you were looking at the text. Dear Mr. Kappas, celebrate Christmas in this devout feeling that perhaps he needs this very anguish of yours in order to begin. These very days of your transition are perhaps the time when everything in you is working at Him, as you once worked at Him in your childhood, breathlessly. Be patient and without bitterness, and realize that the least we can do is to make coming into existence no more difficult for Him than the earth does for spring when it wants to come. And be glad and confident. Yours, Rainer Maria Rilke. Rainer Maria Rilke. Yours. Ours. You might say, okay, Jack, there's lots of theology there, and there's Christmas and philosophy. It's a little out there. 
a little speculative. What has this got to do with literature? And let me remind you that our man, Rainer Maria Rilke, 28 years old when he wrote this letter, was not a theologian by profession, not a divinity school professor, not a minister, and not a monk. He was simply a poet. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Stephen Mitchell, to Rainer Maria Rilke. Wow, my heart is still pounding. Thanks to all of you for listening. This heart does not pump without you guys, my dear listeners. And thanks to my old friend, Bloomy, who jumped right in and supplied just what I needed at just the right time. Good old Bloomy. Next episode, we go to hell, so to speak. <laughs> we have a little teaser with an expert in hell. And we'll have a conversation with a, a new biographer of Oscar Wilde man who's written a new biography of Oscar Wilde, I should say. We will have more about Oscar, which is an endlessly fascinating topic. This time, I asked our biographer all about Oscar as a boy, which doesn't get discussed all that often, what his boyhood was like. We will hear what was in the wild child that became the wild man. Hmm. I am the unwild, Jack Wilson. Un. That's a good way to Describe me with an un, unusual, unfit, uncouth, unkempt, unwitting. Lots of uns in my world. Understanding, hopefully. Underweight, perhaps. Unguint, at times, unfortunately. Untimely, unable to stop. <laughs> Unlike a host who can wrap things up in a timely fashion. Unwrapped. Unraveled. Unhinged. Undone. Uncle. <laughs> <laughs>